0: This is Spacetime, series 21, episode 86, for broadcast on the 31st of October, 2018. Coming up on Spacetime, researchers confirm the Earth's inner core is solid, evidence of a galactic collision, and Russian physicists have created dark matter, at least in a computer. All that and more coming up on Spacetime.
1: Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: A new study has confirmed that the Earth's inner core is solid, but probably a lot softer than previously thought. The findings reported in the journal Science provide researchers with a new glimpse into planet Earth's formation and evolution. The discoveries, based on the detection of J-waves or shear waves following earthquake activity. These waves can only travel through solid objects. The study's lead author, Associate Professor Havoy Kulchich, together with Anson Pham, both from the Australian National University, used a correlation wave method to examine similarities between the signals at two receivers after a major earthquake rather than focusing on direct wave arrivals. As well as confirming that the inner core is solid, the authors also found that it's softer than previously thought, with the nickel iron having elastic properties similar to gold and platinum. Inner core shear waves are so tiny and feeble, they can't be observed directly. In fact, detecting them has been considered somewhat of a holy grail of global seismology ever since scientists first predicted the inner core was solid back in the 1930s and 40s. So the authors came up with a rather creative approach. They firstly ignored all the big seismology readings coming through during and immediately after an earthquake. Instead, they searched for fainter signatures coming through about 3 to 10 hours after a large earthquake had occurred. The authors used a global network of seismic stations looking at every single receiver pair and every single large earthquake in order to measure or cross-correlate similarities between the seismograms. It was from those similarities that they constructed a global correlogram, a sort of fingerprint of the Earth.
2: I think that this research uh, using the, the correlation wave field which is a new paradigm in seismology in global seismology in particular, demonstrated the potential of this method and I think that it opens up a way for new discoveries about the internal structure
0: of our planet. The results were then used to demonstrate the existence of J-waves and infer the shear wave speed in the inner core. Kolchitz says understanding the Earth's inner core has direct consequences for the generation and maintenance of the planet's geomagnetic field. And of course, without that geomagnetic field, there would be no life on Earth's surface.
2: The solidity of the inner core was proposed back in 1940 by mineral physicist Francis Birch. And he proposed that what Inge Lehmann discovered in 1936. So four years before that paper, that what, he, what she discovered is actually a transformation of a liquid to a solid phase of iron. At that time, when Inge Lehmann discovered the inner core, she didn't have sufficient information from the seismic waves that she was looking at, and th- those were compressional
0: waves, to conclude that the inner core was indeed solid. There was just, what, a so, change in the waves, and that was, that was it?
2: Yeah, yeah, that was the, the seismic waves They can tell us if there is a change in elastic properties of rocks through which they travel. So she observed that there was a significant change or substantial change in those properties, and that's how the inner core was proposed. However, Birch, as I, as I mentioned, really hypothesized that it was a change from liquid to solid phase of iron, and then it essentially became a quest to find a mechanism or to find a proof by looking at other types of earthquake waves that the inner core is indeed solid. So the waves that I'm referring to are also known as shear waves, and as you know, after large earthquakes, there are essentially two types of ground particle motion, and one of them is known as compressional or P waves and another is um, shear or S waves. So the shear waves, they cannot propagate through gas, plasma or liquids. So if we could detect shear waves through the inner core, that would be a direct proof that the inner core is indeed solid. And so the quest for these shear waves started, I would say, uh, back in 1940s, and it has been going on for the last 80 years or so.
0: And so the hunt is on to find shear waves, and uh, what are J-waves?
2: So J-waves are essentially shear waves that propagate through the inner core. Same thing. So we call them J waves just to differentiate them from the so-called I waves and I is the phase of compressional waves in the inner core. So J would be equivalent to shear waves in the inner core. Okay. Sure. So so the J waves are shear waves in the inner
0: core. How did you go about looking for that and what did you then find?
2: Uh, well the key, so the key moment was the moment when we realized that if we wanted to observe shear waves in the inner core, we would have to abandon a conventional way of searching for them because obviously these waves are very difficult to observe in the direct seismic wave field because of their tiny amplitudes. And so they are below the observational threshold in the direct seismic wave field. So the key moment was when we made a decision to throw away the first several hours of seismograms after large earthquakes and to look at the later part of the seismogram that we refer to as a coda. Um,
0: So you wait for all the noise to dissipate? And then you looked at what was left afterwards.
2: Exactly. We, in fact, we wait for the signal, the main signals, the biggest arrivals of the most prominent seismic wave to disappear, essentially. And then we concentrate on the later part of the wave field. And the key thing is then we don't look for direct arrivals of these waves, but we look for similarities between two recordings. Say you have a recorder in Canberra and another one in Sydney, that's about 300 kilometers away, and you have an earthquake in Japan or the Mediterranean Sea or whatever, then you would, instead of looking for direct arrivals, you actually measure similarity between these two seismograms. And you do that for all the receiver pairs everywhere on the surface of the planet after large earthquakes. So that's many combinations of receivers and large earthquakes. And you stack them all together to produce the so-called global correlogram. And that's what we have done. So that global correlogram, as I like to call it, is, is in a way the fingerprint of the Earth because all the features in that correlogram correspond to physical features in the Earth's interior. And this is how we... Detected J waves in the inner core. So, through the similarity of these waveforms.
0: And there were some surprises there. The inner core is solid, but it's not as hard as some people had hypothesized, I take it.
2: Sure. Um, so, Yes, normally I get questions from people uh, about the, first of all, about the solidity of the inner core because the textbooks and the school textbooks will tell you that the inner core is solid. So indeed there were previous attempts where people used free oscillations of the Earth to establish that the inner core should be solid to actually fit those observations. And this was probably the most significant evidence that we had that the inner core was solid at those temperatures and pressures. Now, we were never actually able to directly measure the speed of shear waves, and this is the first time that we provide constraints on that shear wave speed in a convincing way, so that from that shear wave speed, we can actually measure the so-called modulus of rigidity or the measure of the rigidity of the inner core. And when we did that, we realized that our new estimates of rigidity are lower than what was previously taught.
0: Is it the same all the way through or would it change in degree as you get more towards the very center of the Earth because of the increased pressure and temperatures at the, say, the surface of the inner core compared to the very center of the inner core? And the other question I guess there is, is there an actual surface to the inner core or is it more like it sort of phases from a liquid state towards a solid state?
2: That's an excellent question and in this work we did experiments when we varied the shear wave speed in the inner core as a function of the distance from the center of the Earth or as a function of a radius, if you wish. Mm. And we established that this reduction in the shear wave speed and in the rigidity has to be applied to the entire bulk of the inner core. So we excluded the possibility that the inner core is less stiff or softer just in the upper layer of the inner core. So we established that based on our numerical simulations that the entire volume of the inner core would have to be involved to explain our observations. Now, I should add before I answer your second question is that there's an ongoing debate why the inner core prohibits these shear waves, why they're not more prominent, and why the inner core is more attenuative and softer than we would expect at these high pressure and temperature conditions and the first school of thought is that this is simply due to intrinsic property of iron at those conditions whereas the alternative hypothesis is that there are pockets of melt enriched with light elements apart from iron and nickel that contribute to that smaller rigidity of the inner core
0: okay
2: and Then to answer your question about the surface of the inner core, it is established from seismological observations that most places where we can observe the reflections of the inner core, that that boundary is fairly well pronounced. However, there are some other observations suggesting that the inner core, that there could be a mushy zone uh, Mm. at the top of the inner core. And so I would say that at the present time, this is still a subject of research as well as how the inner core actually solidifies you know is it growing from the inside out or it's maybe some sort of uh snowing process happening where the crystals would essentially snow down from the outer liquid outer core
0: uh, almost like an accretion
2: Correct, yes.
0: So how does all this change or reinforce our understanding of the center of the Earth?
2: Well, look, there are some direct implications of this research. First of all, now we have, I would say, a convincing proof that the inner core is indeed solid from the observations of body waves. And secondly, we know a little bit more about the structure. Why is that important? First of all, the rigidity or the reduced rigidity of the inner core is actually... very convenient if I can say in that way in terms of geodynamics of the inner core and its relationship with the mantle. Namely reduced rigidity means that the inner core is a little bit easier to deform than we thought. So in a way one of the parameters that we described is called Poisson's ratio and that Poisson's ratio can vary for all of the earth elements in between 0 and 0.5. In terms of the inner core is actually almost 0.5, it's very high. And essentially what this means is that when you squeeze that material in one direction, it's going to expand in the direction perpendicular to it, almost to the same extent. that that you apply the force to squeeze it. So some such elements are gold and platinum, or for instance, a piece of rubber or clay uh, saturated by water. So that means that the inner core is more prone to deformation and this can explain, and it's actually compatible with some of the observations that we have about the change of length of day and also uh, the differential rotation of the inner core with respect
0: to the mantle, because it's actually rotating a little bit faster than the mantle in this crust, isn't it? Uh,
2: well, uh, about five years ago, we published another paper in Nature Geoscience on demonstrating that differential rotation of the inner core with respect to the mantle is fluctuating. So mm-hmm. at times it goes faster than the rest of the mantle, but at times it slows down and goes slower. So. This new discovery that the inner core is in fact softer than we, or less stiff than we thought previously, goes hand in hand with those previous observations of the differential rotation because you can see how a uh, softer material could be uh, easier to deform.
0: That's Associate Professor Havoya Kolcich from the Australian National University. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered evidence confirming a collision took place between the large and small Magellanic Clouds, two of the nearest galaxies to the Milky Way. The findings reported in the astrophysical journal Letters shows that the entire southeastern region or wing of the small Magellanic Cloud is moving in a different direction to the main body of the galaxy, unambiguous evidence that the small and large Magellanic Clouds recently collided. The study's lead author, Professor Salioi, used recently released data from the European Space Agency's Gaia Satellite to examine the motions of stars in the small Magellanic Cloud. Gaia is designed to image stars over and over again over a period of many years, thereby providing a plot of their movement in real time. This allows scientists to measure how stars are moving across the sky. Oyan and colleagues were searching for runaway stars, that is stars that had been ejected from clusters within the small Magellanic Cloud. During their observations, they were surprised to find that all the stars within the southeastern wing of the small Magellanic Cloud are moving in a similar direction and speed. The authors say this demonstrates the two Magellanic Clouds likely collided hundreds of millions of years ago. You see, earlier computer modelling had already predicted that a direct collision would cause the small Magellanic Cloud's wing region to move towards the large Magellanic Cloud. Whereas if the two galaxies simply passed near each other, the wing stars would be moving in a perpendicular direction. But instead, the wings moving away from the small Magellanic Cloud and towards the large Magellanic Cloud, confirmation that a direct collision occurred. The large and small Magellanic clouds are named after Ferdinand Magellan, who became the first European to officially record them during his expedition to circumnavigate the Earth between 1519 and 1522. The bigger and nearer of the pair is the large Magellanic cloud, located about 160,000 light years away. It's about 14,000 light years across, twice that of the small Magellanic cloud, which is located about 200,000 light years from the Milky Way. By way of comparison, the Milky Way is about 100,000 light years across. Currently the two dwarf galaxies are separated by 75,000 light years. They were considered the closest galaxies to the Milky Way until the 1994 discovery of the Sagittarius dwarf elliptical galaxy and then the 2003 confirmation that the Canis Major dwarf galaxy is actually our nearest galactic neighbour. The total mass of the Magellanic clouds is still uncertain. Only a fraction of their gas appears to have coalesced into stars, and they both probably have extremely large dark matter halos. One recent estimate places the total mass of the Large Magellanic Cloud at about a tenth that of the Milky Way. The Magellanic Clouds have both been greatly distorted by gravitational-tidal interactions as they are gradually being torn apart, both through as it now seems collisions with each other as well as a possible third now absorbed Magellanic Cloud and through gravitational interactions with the Milky Way. All these huge tidal forces have turned both Magellanic Clouds into irregular, disrupted barred spiral galaxies. Mind you, the large Magellanic Cloud still retains a very clear spiral structure in radio-telescope images of neutral hydrogen. But of course, gravity isn't a one-way street, with the combined gravitational force of both Magellanic Clouds also affecting the Milky Way, distorting the outer parts of the galactic disk. And streams of neutral hydrogen gas clouds and isolated stars connect both dwarf galaxies with each other and also bridge the gap to the Milky Way itself. All providing clear examples of galactic cannibalism or work. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. Russia has resumed launches of its Soyuz rockets. A Soyuz 21B launch vehicle is blasted into orbit, carrying a Russian military spy satellite from the Placest Cosmodrome, 800 kilometers north of Moscow. The return to flight status comes just weeks after all Soyuz flights were grounded. That followed the failure during ascent to orbit of a Soyuz mission carrying two new crew members for the International Space Station. The ascent aboard happened just two minutes after the launch of the Soyuz MS-10 from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan. The emergency happened as the four strap-on liquid-fueled boosters were being jettisoned a minute and 58 seconds after launch. As the boosters were flipping backwards and clear of the core stage in a spectacular manoeuvre known as a Korilov cross, one of the boosters apparently failed to separate cleanly, resulting in the ultimate destruction of the Soyuz FG launch vehicle. The Soyuz capsule was quickly jettisoned, landing in a high-G ballistic descent, hitting the ground at least five times before coming to rest on its side some 400 kilometres downrange of the launch pad. A formal commission of inquiry by Roscosmos, the Russian Federal Space Agency, traced the issue to a problem during the launch vehicle's assembly phase at the Baikonur Cosmodrome. The Soyuz-21B launch vehicle, which blasted off from Plesetsk, uses the same core stage and liquid-fuel boosters but a different upper stage and guidance computer compared to the human-rated Soyuz-FG launch vehicle used for the Soyuz MS-10 flight. The Soyuz 21B launch went smoothly, carrying the fourth LOTOS S 1 military electronic surveillance satellite into a 900 kilometer high orbit. The 6,000 kilogram Russian LOTOS spy satellites are designed to eavesdrop on radio transmissions, gathering intelligence for Moscow's military forces. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Physicists have developed mathematical models describing the motion of dark matter particles inside the smallest galaxy halos. Through their computer models, they observe that over time, the dark matter may form spherical droplets of quantum condensate. The new model, described in the journal Physical Review Letters, contradicts previous hypotheses which consider this impossible because they ignored fluctuations of the gravity field produced by dark matter particles. Scientists know dark matter exists because they can see its gravitational interaction with normal matter. However, they have no idea what it is because it doesn't emit electromagnetic radiation. It's this property which hinders dark matter searches, making it hard to even prove its existence. But there are some clues about dark matter's likely properties. For example, they think the speed of dark matter particles is low, which is why they're retained by galaxies. Not only does dark matter interact very weakly with ordinary matter, but as far as we can tell, it interacts very weakly with itself. It's thought every galaxy is surrounded by a dark matter shell or halo, which is far larger in size and mass than the galaxy it surrounds. Most cosmologists believe that dark matter particles would have a large mass, hence their speed should be high. Yet back in the 1980s it was realised that under special conditions, these dark matter particles may be produced in the early universe with almost zero speed, regardless of their mass. And rather than having a large mass, they could also be very light. As a consequence, the distances at which the quantum nature of these particles becomes apparent could be huge. Instead of the nanometer scales, which are usually required to observe quantum phenomena in laboratories, the quantum scale for such dark matter particles may well be comparable to the size of the central part of our galaxy. The researchers observed that the dark matter particles, if they are bosons with sufficiently small mass, could form a Bose-Einstein condensate in a small galaxy halo, or even smaller substructures due to their gravitational interactions. These substructures could include halos of dwarf galaxies, systems of several billion stars, bound together by gravitational forces and mini-clusters, very small systems formed only by dark matter. The Bose-Einstein condensate is a state of quantum particles in which they all occupy the lowest energy level. It's close to absolute zero, and collections of atoms in this Bose-Einstein condensate show many of the properties of behaving as just a single gigantic atom. Bose-Einstein condensates can be produced in laboratories at very low temperatures from ordinary atoms. This state of matter exhibits unique properties, such as superfluidity, that is, the ability to pass through tiny cracks and capillaries without friction. And according to the author's model, light-dark matter in a galaxy will have low speed and huge concentration. And under these conditions, it should eventually also form a Bose-Einstein condensate. But in order for this to happen, dark matter particles must interact with each other. And that's the point. You see, as far as we know, they can only interact with each other gravitationally. One of the study's authors, Dmitry Levkov from the Russian Academy of Sciences, says his research involved computer simulations which involved simulating the motion of a quantum gas of light gravitationally interacting dark matter particles. Levkov and colleagues started from a visualized state with maximal mixing which, when you think about it, is kind of opposite to the Bose-Einstein condensate. After a very long period, 100,000 times longer than the time needed for a particle to cross the simulation volume, the particles spontaneously formed a condensate, which immediately shaped itself into a spherical droplet, a Bose star, under the effect of gravity. The authors concluded that Bose-Einstein condensate may form at the centres of halos of dwarf galaxies in a time shorter than the lifetime of the universe. So this means Bose stars could populate them now. These computer simulations were the first to show the formation of the Bose-Einstein condensate from a hypothesized light-dark matter. Previous simulations had the condensate already present in the initial state, with the Bose stars then forming from it. According to one hypothesis, the Bose condensate could have formed in the early universe, long before the formation of galaxies or mini-clusters. Of course, reliable evidence of this is currently lacking. Still, it's worth considering, because the authors are hypothesizing that Bose stars could produce fast radio bursts that currently have no quantitative explanation. So, what about the hypothetical light-dark matter particles? Well, the hypothetical axion could theoretically interact with electromagnetic fields very weakly, eventually decaying into radio photons. Admittedly, this effect would be vanishingly small. But inside a Bose star, it may be resonantly amplified, and so could lead to the generation of what we call a fast radio burst. Mind you, it is all hypothetical, but it's fun thinking about. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Spacetime. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that some weather conditions have been linked to an increased risk of heart attack. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, are based on data for more than 274,000 patients who've had heart attacks in Sweden. Researchers found days with low air temperature, low atmospheric pressure, high winds and shorter periods of sunshine were all associated with an increased risk of heart attack, with the greatest risk occurring when the mercury dropped below zero degrees Celsius. However, the researchers point out that absolute differences were modest and they don't know if staying indoors and out of the cold makes any sort of difference for an individual's risk. Marine archaeologists have discovered what's thought to be the world's oldest intact shipwreck at the bottom of the Black Sea. The 2,400-year-old ancient Greek trading vessel was found in more than two kilometres of water with its original shape still intact, complete with mast and rudder. Researchers say the ship's design had only previously been seen in modern times, portrayed on Greek pottery. The vessel's age was confirmed using carbon dating. It was found as part of a three-year survey of 2,000 square kilometres of seabed, which has so far led to the discovery of more than 60 shipwrecks, including Roman trading ships and a 17th century Cossack raiding fleet. The preservation of so many ancient shipwrecks on the floor of the Black Sea is a result of the unusually low oxygen levels in the Black Sea's deep waters, allowing organic material such as wood to be preserved for many thousands of years. The Palestinian Hamas terrorist organisation which controls the Gaza Strip has destroyed a 4,500 year old ancient Canaanite archaeological site, levelling it to the ground. Archaeologists began excavating Gaza's earliest archaeological site nearly 20 years ago, unearthing what appears to be a rare 4,500-year-old Bronze Age fortified settlement, built centuries before pharaonic rule in Egypt and at least 1,000 years before the pyramids. Known as Tel Khan or the Hill of Ash, it was the largest Canaanite city between Palestine and Egypt. It was named after the large amount of ash found during the excavations, which suggests the settlement had been burnt either naturally or in a war. However, Gaza's Hamas rulers have systematically plundered and then destroyed the site, flattening the hill on the southern tip of Gaza City to make way for new military bases for the terrorist organisation. A new study claims the majority of Australians are concerned about the federal government's proposed new encryption legislation. The new bill designed to ensure government and law enforcement has a backdoor to access encrypted data on cell phones, computers and other storage devices. The legislation will be the first of its kind globally, giving government unprecedented powers to order communications providers, hardware manufacturers, telcos and technology companies to install or develop interception mechanisms without your knowledge and without authorization from a judge. The Communications Alliance Lobby Group claims surveys by ReachTel show that 84.8% of people believe that anything the government does to combat crime should not create weaknesses in online security systems. And over 74% of those surveyed were concerned that the legislation could make data including people's health records, banking details and other personal information less secure. With the details, we're joined by Alex Zahar of Reut, from IT Wire.
1: Whether it's the V-chip incident in the US in the 80s where they were trying to get to encryption chip maybe the 90s, governments of all political persuasions always seem to want to overreach their powers and they want to be able to more easily catch criminals by denying the rights of everybody else. Whether it's metadata legislation, whether it's installing some sort of great censorship firewall, both of those things tried in Australia. And in fact, we, we do have metadata being captured in Australia of every uh, phone call of every website that you visit. And we even have in New Zealand where um, if you don't hand over Under new laws, your password to your phone or computer, you can be fined $5,000 and there's no need for them to be, you know, they don't have to have a legitimate suspicion. If they just want to grab your phone and demand that you give over the password, then um, if you don't, they can fine you $5,000. Now, that's similar sorts of laws exist in the States. The borders seem to be a borderless zone where, you know, your rights don't apply. And in Australia, the latest is for the government to wish to put a backdoor into encryption. And of course, doing that, if there's a backdoor for the good guys, it means the bad guys can find it and then they can be listening to what's going on. So, you know, we've got Apple putting in a seven-page submission and they're talking about this is no time to weaken encryption. There's a profound risk of criminals' jobs easier, not harder, increasingly stronger, and not weaker. Encryption is the best way to protect against these threats, so they say. And they talk about how encryption is simply math. Any process that weakens the mathematical models that protect user data for anyone will, by extension, weaken the protections for everyone, Apple says. It would be wrong to weaken security for millions of law-abiding customers in order to investigate the very few who pose a threat. You hear similar things from Facebooks and Mozilla's and Google's and other organizations that are against this, but Apple's put down several of its concerns. They talk about how this bill could allow the government to order that the makers of smart home speakers to install persistent eavesdropping capabilities into a person's home, or require a provider to monitor the health data of its customers for indications of drug use, or require the development of a tool that can unlock a particular user's device, regardless of whether such tools could be used to unlock every other user's devices as well. And didn't we have a book called 1994? Didn't we have, isn't sci-fi a warning about the dystopian futures that go completely wrong against the people? You know, the last thousand years of humanity is all about being trying to stop kings and queens and leaders and dictators and despots and tyrants from uh, lording it over the rest of us and here we are in this technological well exactly we're in this golden technological age and the tools of our freedom are now being used against us and it's a terrible thing and we should be fighting against it to, to secure our rights for privacy. As I've mentioned on this program before, you know, Ronald Reagan said liberty is not passed down through the bloodstream. The same goes with privacy. He said you know, liberty has to be fought for by every generation and we cannot be the generation that allows privacy to slip through our fingers and tell our children what it was once like to live in a world where you had privacy.
0: That report by Alex Sahar of Roy from IT Wire. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpacetimeWithStewartGary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Spacetime's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world